Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to The C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, explores how a changing climate is posing new challenges to people's health. Diseases such as Zika viruses are the sort of things we need to think about as previously tropical diseases can spread to our climate. But as the wealth gap widens in America, climate impacts are hitting some harder than others. So it's not surprising that people of color are often the strongest advocates for climate action. When people think they can put the burdens in someone else's backyard, you just get more of them. So I think climate equity is not a special interest issue. It's at the center of what we need to do to address the climate crisis. Climate health and climate justice, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Climate change is changing so many aspects of our society, from the economy to international relations, and certainly the weather. Today we're going to explore some of the impacts on people's health and on social equality. Fossil fuels have lifted nations into the modern era, bringing wealth and well-being to many. But as we turn away from these carbon-intensive energy sources, Will the promise of jobs and prosperity from a clean energy society be fulfilled? Or will the gulf between the haves and have-nots simply widen? What will the future look like for Asian American, Hispanic American, and African American citizens? And for new immigrants coming to our shores? We're going to hear from three leaders of the environmental justice movement. Manuel Pastor is director of the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at the University of Southern California. Mia Yoshitami is the executive director of the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network, which serves immigrant communities. And Vien Trong is national director of Green for All, an advocacy group based in Oakland. Here's Greg talking about climate equity. Intrung, let's begin with you. Tell us your story, how you came as an immigrant from Vietnam to an activist in Oakland. I'm the youngest of 11 kids, and uh, my mom was pregnant with me, nine months pregnant, when she got in a boat with all of us, and my dad, and my grandma, to get the 500 miles from Vietnam to Macau. I ended up being born, actually, once we got into a refugee camp, and that's why I didn't have citizenship for a long time. We ended up going to Portland, Oregon, where we worked as migrant farm workers for many years, picking snow peas and strawberries. My mom strapped me on the back. That's what we did back in the day. And we ended up moving to Oakland, where my family became sweatshop workers. And so for me, what I think of when I think of the work that we're doing 
It's about people who've been displaced for whatever reason. It's about people who are literally sweating away in inhumane conditions out in the farmlands. It's about people who have no access to a decent job, no access to health care. And what does it mean when climate change aggravates all of the problems that they're going through? Quite a story. Manuel Pastor, you were a uh, professor in Los Angeles and you went on a toxic tour. What were you think about environmentalism and how did that change your views of environmentalism as a more core issue for you? A uh, colleague, Jim Sad and I, had two great students who wanted to do a study, they said, of environmental justice. That is the fact that there are disparities in terms of exposures and proximity to hazards for communities of color in Los Angeles. So they wound up uh, doing this. This was in the 1990s. And then one day I opened up the LA Times and there was an article above the fold on the first page saying, Occidental College Study Alleges Environmental Racism. At which point Jim and I thought, we'd better start supervising our students. (laughs) Um, We went back and kind of looked at the study and fixed it up. And it sort of caught the attention of the press, caught the attention of policymakers. And I think that the environmental movement has done a really good job of convincing people that everyone has the right to clean air, that children have the right to not be affected by asthma from pollution, etc. And it seems to me like we need to broaden that concept of the environment because everybody's also got the right to a good school. They've got the right to access to employment. They've got the right to be able to enjoy themselves and realize their opportunities. So for me, environmental justice, it's important in and of itself, but it's also a way to get people to understand that there's a broader social and economic environment that we have to make sure that people have access to. Mia Yoshitani, tell us your story, how you came to be where you are now as an advocate. While I was a student, a seminal environmental justice study by uh, Dr. Robert Bullard called Toxic Waste and Race basically demonstrated that whatever metrics you use when you look at proximity to hazardous waste sites, that race was the number one factor. Whether you're African-American or Latino or Asian-American or Native American, you're likely to live closer to hazardous sites Um, that would affect your health and your um, economic outcomes, whether or not you were middle income or poor. And the fact that race was the number one issue just really Mm -hmm. was a defining um, kind of understanding for me about what needed to be built in the movement to actually address this. Manuel Pastor? Uh, We began working with Communities for a Better Environment, and we got a a big grant to work together on environmental justice. And I remember I was very proud. So I told my aunt, my tia Dalia, I said, tia, tia, we just got a big grant to work on environmental justice. He said, ay, Manuelito, I'm so proud. What is environmental justice? <laughs> and I said, well, that's the fact that hazards are disproportionately in low income and uh, communities of color. And uh, she looked at me, still proud, but kind of sad and said, Manuelito, everyone knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Bien Trung, I learned some things preparing for this program, and one is that the uh, opinions of African-American and Latino voters in California and their interest, how they rank climate change as a concern, and their willingness to pay more for solutions. Tell us about that opinion. There's a survey that Green Fraud did with NRDC that showed that people of color across the board understand the importance of climate change to their lives and are willing to actually invest in solutions that mitigates the impacts and provides the long-term benefits in their communities. Manuel Pastor, this goes against the, the image often that climate change is a luxury issue for white people who are comfortable and can think about polar bears and glaciers, which are just far away for many people. When people think about who cares about climate change, what they imagine is a a white uh, hipster in spandex, fresh off their bicycle, sort of tossing (laughs) granola over their shoulder as they walk along. Uh, But in fact, with the polling, and there are a few of them in the audience, and God bless you. But what the polling data shows, it's less the, the bicyclist in spandex and more the immigrant woman who lives near a refinery in Wilmington, who's kind of facing the daily ravages of pollution Uh, from those who are emitting greenhouse gas emissions and the co-pollutants. Those people who are on the front lines in terms of this overburdening of multiple hazards are aware that this is a crisis that needs to be dealt with, and that's the political constituency that we need to keep in mind as we're mobilizing a broad group of people who are concerned about these issues. Manuel Pastor, is this about wealth distribution? 
Part of this is the maldistribution of uh, wealth, but it's also a maldistribution of the environmental hazards and the environmental amenities. In the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. for example, an African-American family making more than $100,000 a year has a higher likelihood of living near a toxic emitter than a white family making $20,000 a year. So people tend to think this is really about income, Mm -hmm. but it's also about race and the way that that plays out in the political power uh, system, which, you know, winds up uh, having a long-term impacts as well on children, their ability to learn, their ability to do well in schools, their ability to be healthy. So equity is about income, equity is about race, equity is about environmental exposures, and equity is about intergenerational equity, whether those of us in this generation are going to make the choices now, not just the individual choices, but the hard policy choices that are going to leave a better planet for the next generation. Mia Yoshitani, you also work with uh, immigrants who have a particular perspective on climate change because of where they've come from. Tell us about how immigrants see climate change both here in the United States and their, their home country. Asian American and Pacific Islander communities across the country, if you do the polling, they really want to see something done on climate immediately. They're willing to pay more in taxes for it. They put it as a primary issue, one of the biggest issues facing their families. And this is not, a, not just a local issue for them. Um, they really understand that what is happening to them here is happening to their families back in their home countries. They understand that they're connected to the outcomes here as well as there. And so the Laotian refugee community in Richmond that we've been um, organizing in for over two decades, it's a fence line community to the Chevron refinery. They came as refugees um, to the United States after living in, in uh, refugee camps in Thailand for over a decade. Um, and they come here out of decades of war to be mm-hmm. um, exposed to some of the most highly toxic chemicals. It's in the air they breathe. It's in the soil that they plant their, their vegetables in. It surrounds them, and they, they have a deep connection to how cleaning up the air and reducing climate pollutants is actually going to bring healthier outcomes for their families. Bien Trung, let's talk about some of the, the positive stories. Where are things getting cleaner and perhaps more equitable? You know, one of the things that we had to work together on is a law in California called SB 535. And it has gone to so many programs, including to free solar for families who could never afford it. Fresno, one of the poorest and most polluted communities in the country, received a number of these free solar panels for their households. One woman named Maria Zavala, she was a new widow of a few years, teenage son in and out of trouble. Her sister-in-law had actually passed a few months before we met her out of pollution-related illnesses. And she heard about this program for free solar. She applied and got a free solar panel and saw it on her rooftop. And her average energy bill went from $200 a month to $1.50, just a little over the cost of a soda, right? But what that actually means is somebody got a job putting the solar on her rooftop. The refinery that was cranking out this dirty energy actually cranked out a little less energy. And the community that lived around it got to breathe a little better. And all of our health got to be improved. And Maria got to save $200 a month that she now gets to invest in the local economy of Fresno. So that is the possibility of what we can do once we get this right. We can't talk about environmental justice in this country without talking about Flint, Michigan. So, Professor Pastor, I'd like to hear you on on Flint. The country got pretty darn mad about that. Flint is a tremendous tragedy because for what amounted to $100 a month, it turned out that a generation of children have been poisoned by lead because they didn't have the political power. They were literally disenfranchised. It's a population that's low income, been devastated by industrialization, largely African-American, at least relative to Michigan standards. I think it's... uh, you know, it's a, just a tremendous tragedy. And what I hope people realize is that that tragedy is being replicated in so many different locations, maybe not quite so extreme. But when you've got 
hazardous waste being spewed into communities, when you've got air quality with particulate matter and toxics that are creating asthma so that children are unable to concentrate and learn in school, you're causing a kind of lighter version of the same problems that these young kids in Flint, Michigan are going to face going forward. I hope that we find the political will to deal with Flint, and I hope that we find the political will as a nation and a state to deal with this environmental disparity that affects so many children. There's been a long time saying in media that if it bleeds, it leads. But what we have seen in the environmental movement and the environmental justice movement is that's not true. Mm -hmm. Because our communities have been bleeding and dying from a number of environmental problems, and it hasn't caught national attention. Flint was a perfect example. That story was public two years ago, and now we're learning about it. Manuel Pastor? Communities know these issues. And it took only a couple of months before community members in Flint were saying there's a problem with the water and this ought to be addressed. And I think that one of the things we do sometimes as policymakers and researchers is not listen to what communities are saying that they know to be real and validating and trying to figure out what they're saying. If if Flint residents had been listened to early, the kind of lasting effects we're going to see for their children and the costs of that would have been evaded. We actually have to begin making sure that stories like Flint aren't continuing to happen. It's not enough that we just get Flint residents clean water. We actually have to begin addressing all of the issues that was around Flint and communities like Flint. So it's not just about clean water, but it's about how do we get a long-term sustainable economy in Flint? How do we have long-term solutions? We're talking about economic disparity at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about diversity and the green economy with Manuel Pastor, Director of the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at the University of Southern California, Mia Yoshitani, Executive Director of the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network, and Vien Trong, National Director of Green for All. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. I'd like to ask Vien Trung about some vulnerabilities in terms of climate impacts. 2015 was the hottest year on record. It's going to get hotter. That's going to affect people that don't have air conditioning, et cetera. That's right. And so we're going to see people's health impacted. We're going to see people who are vulnerable, seniors and young people, especially those with asthma or other sensitivities, be aggravated even further, especially if they're living in areas that are especially hot, areas that are surrounded by pollution or by mountains that captures and keeps in the pollution. And not only are we individually more vulnerable, our entire communities are becoming more vulnerable. I recently had a chance to sit down with leaders from the Huma Nation. They're in the Gulf Coast, and their community, their land, is being submerged underwater at the rate of a football field every hour. Every hour, a football field of their land is going underwater. Their entire community is vulnerable. And in 8 to 10 years, it's likely to be entirely underwater. And it's happening so quickly, they can't even build a seawall to protect it. And so they're going to have to relocate. And what's going to happen to their land, their culture, their history? And where are they going to go? And what's going to happen to the community that they move to, right? The only communities they can afford to move to are other communities already under stress. And so when you bring in a new community on top of that, if we don't facilitate that well and right, it actually can create more tensions for the lack of resources. We have to begin figuring out how do we actually begin anticipating that in our solutions and our policies. Some of the dislocation, climate-driven that we've seen from the Middle East to Europe could happen perhaps on a smaller scale here in the United States. Right. As a refugee myself, as a person who was displaced, my entire community was displaced. I am especially sensitive to the fact that not only are we seeing this internationally, we're seeing this in our own country now. From Katrina to Sandy to what's happening in the Huma Nation, we're seeing displacement by climate change now in our country. Mia Yoshitani. Because the crisis is so big, we are at a moment where we, we are being forced to do something about this. We have to address climate change, and we have to address it equitably. We have to meet the real needs of those communities in order for all of us to be able to survive the climate crisis. And that offers us huge amounts of opportunities. When we divest all that we've been investing in the dirty energy economy, that frees up an enormous amount. When we demand that polluters actually pay for the full cost of pollution, 
there's tremendous resources for us to actually build the the infrastructure and the local economies and um, the thriving, resilient neighborhoods in the face of climate change that we actually need. Mia Yoshitani, a lot of the solutions, how people can directly, personally affect climate change are consumer actions, buying organic, getting solar, a plug-in car. Do I have any personal responsibility? It's easy to attack supply and big companies, but what about personal responsibility for the choices we make? I think you have a greater personal responsibility to go out and vote for people who are going to be leaders in this transition than you do to go buy a new car. Manuel Pastor, personal responsibility versus saying it's the man, it's the, it's the big institutions, they're evil, and I don't, I don't have any responsibility. I can just live my life the way I do. I'm not sure that that's the right choice because I don't think it's a question of pointing a finger at someone else and assuming that they're going to do the work. I think what Mia is saying is that our personal responsibility is to join with our neighbors, our friends, and our allies uh, to try to think about what the right policies are, to push for those policies to come into being, to try to grow the economy in a more equitable way. That said, if you wanted to take personal responsibility and buy me a Tesla, I think that that would be one way to assuage your guilt. I mean, I well, really, uh, yeah, I got lots I would, of guilt. I would like to help you out, you know. So, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I think there's one area that you guys should have touched upon. It's not too late, and that is nuclear. Indian Point, which is a nuclear plant just outside of New York City. They want it shut down. It's way overdue to get shut down. Uh, so what are you thinking? Thank you. Who'd like to tackle nuclear? Tackle Mi- nuclear. Mia Yus- <laughs> Yoshitani? Yeah, I mean, it's a, an outdated uh, strategy. It's, it's too expensive. It's highly centralized. It goes counter to the whole way that we want to develop our energy system. We don't need it. It's dangerous. It's hazardous to people's health from where it's mined out of the ground to where it's shipped to where it's used to where it's then stored as waste. There is absolutely no justification for nuclear energy. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Uh, California is trying to reduce its carbon emissions, and some of the representatives are saying that increased gasoline prices and other things that are done to reduce carbon emissions may hurt the economy, that people that you're talking about may even lose their jobs because the economy will suffer. What do you say to that? Manuel Pastor? It is true that if you raise the price of gas, that it can be regressive. But if you use those funds to invest in public transit for low-income populations that use it, you can mitigate part of those effects. It's also not clear that it costs a lot of employment relative to trying to generate the kinds of employment that we might get in renewable energy industries, in the kind of resilience and retrofitting that we need to have. There's a lot of entry-level positions for which there are then career ladders and trajectories moving forward. So I think it's been an argument that's been sort of conveniently raised and actually doesn't reflect what communities themselves are saying about whether it hurt the economy or not. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, compañeros. Lisa Hoyos with Climate Parents, and it's great panel, Greg. So I know that you all, in one way or another, work to support SB 350 to get us to 50% by 2030, but also to cut petroleum use in half by 2030. And that part got taken out because of political influence and money influence from groups like the Western States Petroleum Association. But also their campaign contributions um, helped pick off, if you will, a number of representatives who I know we all expected more of, Latino elected officials, African-American elected officials. So my question is, what would you guys do and what you're thinking about how we counter the influence of fossil fuel money in politics? Daniel Pastor? I think that it's important that we acknowledge that just because someone who's elected is a Latino doesn't mean they're going to represent Latino community issues. I'm, for example, I'm not a big fan of Ted Cruz, uh, (laughs) who... uh, would, you know, have deported my undocumented father. So I don't, you know, I think we need to kind of really ask the question what agenda people have and to use that as a way to really build a movement going forward. Mia Yoshitani. 
we not only have to build renewable energy infrastructure in disadvantaged communities, we have to build electoral infrastructure. So just because the polling is indicating that people's opinion states that they support this transition, it doesn't mean that those people are actually making it to the polls. And one of the best ways to assure that they do that is to speak to them about issues that they care about that connect their everyday life to climate and to the environment. And it's very easy for us to do that as folks who have been working in these communities for decades. It's not as easy for the helicopter organizations to come in and just kind of knock on people's doors and ask them to vote. So we have to support the groups that are every day, not just on election day, but are every day going block by block and working in these communities and connect those people to the power of their voice. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking to Manuel Pastor of the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, Mia Yoshitani of the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network, and Vien Trong of Green for All. We'd like to know what you're doing about environmental justice. Find us on Facebook or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. We're going to turn now to a conversation about health. We all know that climate change is threatening the health of polar bears in the Arctic. But what's it got to do with asthma or depression or a baby's birth weight? Well, actually, a lot. Greg's next guests make these connections and also explore ways in which communities are working to protect people from heat stroke and poor air while moving us away from a fossil-fueled economy. Katrina Peters is a psychiatrist at San Francisco General Hospital and associate clinical professor of psychiatry at UCSF. Robert Gould is a pathologist and president of the San Francisco chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Rachel Morello is Professor of Environmental Science Policy and Management at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. And Linda Rudolph directs the Center for Climate Change and Health at the Public Health Institute. Here's our conversation about the health hazards of a hot world. Linda Rudolph, let's begin with you. Uh, climate change, people think about polar bears, glaciers, maybe sea level rise, don't often think about public or personal health. What should we be concerned about? Well, it's an existential threat because climate change threatens our air, our water, our food, our shelter, and our security. And the effects are myriad, ranging from the direct impacts like heat illness in a heat wave or injuries in a big flood or a hurricane. And then there's all sorts of indirect effects like increasing air pollution from warming temperatures or many, many different impacts on our food supply ranging from declines in crop yield, rising food prices. What climate change does is it exacerbates our existing health challenges and it poses risks of new emerging challenges. Bob Gould, the White House recently came out with a big report, the Surgeon General, the President's National Science Advisor, kind of laid out what's at risk for American health. What did they say? You know, we've been aware of manifold threats that range from heat extremes to changes in vector patterns, the, the insects and other organisms that carry diseases, such as Zika viruses arising in Brazil and other countries, are the sort of things we need to think about as previously tropical diseases can spread to our climate. Uh, we also have to be concerned about uh, waterborne diseases in terms of a projected increase in cholera, as well as algal blooms. Rachel Morello, what are the vulnerable populations in the state and how are they uh, affected by climate change? The vulnerable populations are often people who work in occupations where they don't have control over their conditions of their workplace. So think about people who are in construction farm workers who are working under very uh, extremely harsh conditions under, under normal weather patterns. And then during the summer when you have these heat waves, more often than not, the people that are landing in the emergency rooms and who are uh, dying on the job are people in those kinds of occupations. 
I think the other kind of indirect health impact, but I think one that's really one to keep in mind is sort of the economic dislocation that happens because of climate change. So, for example, the tourist industry, if we think about what happened to the ski season last year, which basically pretty much disappeared because there were no snow in the mountains, think about the people who work in those industries, mostly low-income people of color in the service industry, the hotel industry. Their jobs literally vaporize during those kinds of weather events. They're very vulnerable, kind of seasonal jobs. And then I think the last thing to really consider is that very often the prices of our basic necessities go up. And so for people like you and I, you know, we complain about higher energy bills or higher food bills. We pay more for milk or eggs. But if you think about a low-income household that pays a very large proportion of their salary to buy food every month, that's a huge hit. I want to talk about the Central Valley, where a lot of uh, vulnerable communities are. Rachel Morello, what is their impact there in terms of climate change? There's a lot of heat, you know, a lot of local pollution. What are we seeing there? One of the big challenges we're seeing right now are challenges in terms of access to drinking water. So the four-year drought has taken its toll, particularly for people who are reliant on very small community water systems, or their source of water is a well that's literally in their backyard, and those wells are drying up. Um, and so they're literally having to uh, get water from somewhere else. It's almost like people are living in a developing country where they have to go very long distances to get water for basic needs right here in California. So that's, that's a very huge issue. Linda Rudolph, what is the state of California doing to protect construction workers, farm workers, people who are outside in this increasing heat? Cal OSHA, unlike the federal OSHA, does have a heat standard to protect workers And they recently amended that to make sure that people that are in these dangerous occupations have access to shade, access to water, access to rest breaks. So we hope that that will put an end to the heat deaths that we've seen, particularly in agricultural workers, every summer. Bob Gould, there's been a lot of fires. What impacts does that have both on local populations and people who are, you know, where the smoke may drift? Well, I mean, that adds to what we would expect in terms of worsening air conditions overall, in terms of generation of smog and ground-level ozone, but in terms of the wildfires, they add an enormous amount of particulate matter as well, so we would expect significant uh, deleterious effects on respiratory health and cardiovascular health due to those particles. Katrina Peters, uh, I'd never thought about before, ski lift workers who suddenly don't have a job or people who have to move because there's a fire, that sort of thing. How can you assess if someone comes in that the mental health impacts is connected to climate? Does it even matter? Well, I do think it matters because if you're going to come up with a solution, you need to understand the sources of the problem. There are individuals who are displaced from Hurricane Katrina. There are individuals who've been displaced because of fires individuals who have had to move because, for example, in some of the small towns in the Central Valley of California, their wells have dried up. So people are very distressed on these things, and they may tend to think sort of in a fatalistic way, I don't know why this happens, you know, why am I so unlucky, where in fact, if there were a larger number of people who understood that many of the things that are happening are not just arbitrary, that these are things that are connected to the great climate changes that we see, we're better able to come up with solutions both individually and in our communities. Rachel Morello, uh, fires, there's a study that uh, shows some correlation with, with birth rate. Tell us about how fires can affect infants. Yeah, so um, there's been a lot of interesting work done about how wildfires, for example, increase the number of visits to emergency rooms because of respiratory effects. And that's sort of immediate and acute. And you see those blips and you know that there's a relationship. But what we wanted to look at in this study was in the 2003 Southern California wildfire, which is huge and lasted a really long time. What was the impact among women who were pregnant during that time in the wildfire in that region? And what we found was that for women who were pregnant during the time that the fire was burning, on average, they gave birth to um, slightly lower birth weight babies. You know, a few grams may not make a big difference in terms of the individual, but when you're talking about a huge population of people who are exposed to wildfire smoke and everybody moves down just a little bit in terms of birth weight, all of a sudden you increase the number potentially of women who are giving birth to low birth weight babies. And why does low birth weight matter so much? 
babies that are born of low birth weight are more likely to have chronic um, health problems later on in, in childhood and as well as uh, in adulthood. So um, we, it's definitely a very important public health indicator. Linda Rudolph, what cities, counties, states are doing a good job educating the public and healthcare professionals about the climate connection and getting ready for this, what's happening now? In California, cities and counties and regions all over the state are taking climate change very seriously, and we're starting to really see that nationwide as well. We're starting to see changes in communities to make it easier for people to walk and bike and take public transit so that we reduce our carbon pollution from automobiles. Los Angeles is looking at how to decide which neighborhood should really be a focus for planting trees to reduce the urban heat island. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about creating healthy communities as the climate changes. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with four health experts, Robert Gould, pathologist and president of the San Francisco chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Katrina Peters, psychiatrist at San Francisco General Hospital, Rachel Morello at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health, and Linda Rudolph from the Public Health Institute. Here's Greg. Rachel Morello, for a long time, doctors have been saying, eat better, exercise more, etc., bike and walk to work. Hasn't done so much. Is it really going to work now? To do those things right now in many places is very difficult, and that's why people don't do it. But I think if you create the environmental conditions where it's easier to take public transit and take the bus than it is to drive and sit in traffic, people will make the right decision. Let's talk about the money to do all these things. This takes some money. Linda Rudolph. We don't have the dollars that we need to do climate adaptation. Those dollars all go into reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is critical. But we ought to be looking at the billions of dollars that we currently subsidize the fossil fuel industry and thinking about how to allocate those dollars differently. We ought to be thinking about using our existing funding streams in a way that's uh, smarter from a climate, health, and equity perspective. Linda Rudolph, I want to tell you about a visit to uh, an orthopedist. My knees are a little achy. I went in to make sure I'm not trashing my knees. And he said, your knees are okay. You're just 52 years old. At the end, I said, doctor, what do you think about climate change as a health issue? And he said, actually, our bones like it when it's warmer, so it may be better. And then he said, we're okay until the future when we'll all be swimming around. So here we have a very sophisticated MD who said, A, it might be better for his particular specialty. And he put climate change in the future rather than today. So how does this typify the challenge of MD education and awareness? Three recent surveys of physicians across the United States showed that over 60% of physicians say that they are seeing the impacts of climate change in their patients now. And depending on the region that they're in, that's either due to more asthma associated with more air pollution, more allergies because of the lengthening and increase in intensity of the pollen production, or because of the impacts of these superstorms that are related to climate change, like Hurricane Katrina and Superstorm Sandy. So your orthopedist notwithstanding, I think many physicians are seeing these impacts now. They know that they're going to get worse, and they know that we need to take action to protect the health of our communities. Uh, let's go to coal export. Linda Rudolph, you went to the Philippines and saw communities that might be purchasing coal. What did you see there? I had an opportunity to visit two coal communities in Bataan province in the Philippines, and it was really shocking. In one of these communities, there was huge, huge mounds of coal being shipped in, and the entire community was covered in coal dust. They had prepared a very nice meal for us, but before we could eat it, they had to literally wipe the coal dust off of the plates. You know, there was children playing as far away as the back of this room from these huge coal dust mounds. And we know from hundreds of years of experience with black lung disease and coal miners what that coal dust is doing to 
the lungs of the people in this community. So it really was very emotional for me to sort of make the connection between exporting coal and the communities that were on the receiving end in less developed nations. Okay. Katrina Peters, another thing that happens on hot days is people get irritable and they get cranky. There was a 2010 study in Cleveland that showed a strong correlation between temperature and and violent crime. Temperature went up, violent crime went up. Do you see a correlation between heat and people kind of getting in fights, that sort of thing? The early studies that are out there are showing that there is a correlation Even people who are on certain psychiatric medications can be adversely affected by being in very hot conditions. Also, when you're in the hot weather, people may not be drinking sufficient water. And then once you start to get dehydrated, even slightly, that tends to affect all of your body systems, including your mood. The other things that the weather can impact is people who have different illnesses. For an example, if you have asthma or other respiratory illnesses, you may find that you're having much more difficulty breathing, which also can make you more irritable and more difficult to function in a usual manner. So we're just beginning to really study all of the impacts of climate, both individual effects on people and also community and group effects. Bob Gould, what could an individual do to prepare and be part of solution to the health effects we've been talking about here? Well, there's, uh, you know, all sorts of advice that people can take at the individual uh, level. And, but I honestly think, you know, we need to be advocating for resources to be able to deal with the major problems that we have. What people need to understand is a real collective need to develop the political will to support the investments that we need to have a new economy and a new energy system that's going to be clean and is going to provide us solutions. But if we're thinking about spending $1 trillion for nuclear weapons over the next 30 years or we're spending $1.7 trillion this year for the international arms trade, which, of course, is facilitated by pumping more oil in the Middle East and places like that, I think we have to expand our horizons to think about what we should be talking about and really opening up the issue in a much broader way. Rachel Morello, you're nodding, but what does that mean? Right members of Congress who is bought and paid for already, quit your day job, go into the streets, what should we do? Individuals need to get engaged in the, in the process. And so, yeah, that means working with your community first. Start with your neighbors. Start figuring out how do you create a more resilient neighborhood so that when there is a heat wave, people know who the vulnerable neighbors are who might need to be checked up on. How do we scale up from that to building a more resilient neighborhood that has a tree canopy and reducing uh, heat islands? And then from that level, you start engaging with your city or your municipality or your community and saying, okay, how do we come up with a climate action plan where we're going to reduce our greenhouse gases and protect the most vulnerable? So, you know, I think that you have to start at at a local level where you're accountable to each other, and then you start to scale up and you start making the politicians accountable to the needs of vulnerable populations and the community as a whole. Linda Rudolph. You know, we, we have to first and foremost address reducing our carbon and climate pollution. Because if we don't do that very quickly and very aggressively, we will make it harder and harder for ourselves to actually respond adequately to climate change. We're at a moment in time right now where we still have time to make a huge difference for our children and our grandchildren. So I think the the single most important thing that everyone that's listening can do is talk to their neighbors and their city council people and their state legislators and their congress people to say, this is a problem for us in our community, and we want you to take action to really address it. Pollsters would say Americans don't vote on the environment. They vote on pocketbook issues. They may be concerned about climate, but Katrina Peters, people don't vote on it. Well, they don't vote on it because I don't think they understand it. And I think if you are able to reframe the argument or discussion to talk about not just the climate, but the personal impacts, people's health is personal. So if you know that your family is going to be impacted, that your 
grandmother who has a number of different illnesses, that by it going up a few more degrees, there being more pollen in the air, other things, that she's going to be going to the hospital more, and you're going to have to be the one to take off work to take her to the emergency room. When your child has asthma attacks every day, and you're not sure how you can correct those things, then it becomes a very personal discussion. And then I think people may be willing to vote for something different. Rachel Morello? I think actually people are voting to address climate change. If you look at polling data, it indicates actually that a lot of demographic groups feel that the government needs to do more to address climate change. And you definitely see that among communities of color. They poll extremely high. And it's not just Democrats either. And I think the conversation in the political arena has shifted too. You see politicians on the defensive about taking money from the fossil fuel industry. You didn't used to see that before. You see a huge divestment movement with major universities divesting their holdings from the fossil fuel industry. So I actually feel like voters who care about this are starting to be heard, and I I personally think that the conversation is changing. Bob Gould? There's a very large movement by large healthcare institutions. Kaiser, UCSF has joined this. Uh, Mayo Clinic, these nationwide major healthcare institutions who understand what the long term healthcare costs are going to be for proceeding in this way. And there are major planks to reduce energy use, to green facilities, reduce the use of toxic chemicals, to have healthy food in hospitals. That is going to be less of an impact on the climate. So there, there are real movements occurring in health professionals and healthcare administrators who are supporting this. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Robin Cooper. I'm a psychiatrist in San Francisco. I'm also an activist around climate change. Um, you brought up that on polling data, there's a good deal of support among the public for these issues around climate controls and a great deal of concern. And I think that there is a big step between the passive agreement on polls to the kind of steps one needs to take to translate to political and policy decisions. Maybe we need to think about what are the things that impair people's ability to make the connections, that shut down people's thoughts about that and then impair their ability to translate their actions to the kinds of things that will push our systems. Thank you. Katrina Peters, some people say that the human brain is perfectly unqualified to deal with this threat. Well, the human brain is unqualified to deal with a lot of things. But (laughs) once you understand what your motivations for things are, and most people's motivations, even if they are altruistic for the whole society, at some point it becomes very personal. And um, one of the ways that this conversation has become personal is when we started uh, making the connection with health care. I work with a very indigent population, people who often don't have a voice. So if we're going to be able to protect them, they also either have to be aware, and also the physicians who take care of them have to be aware of what things may be impacting their care. And if you can really understand the motivations, then you can come up with a solution on how to get us all to look in the mirror and accept this. Well, Linda Rudolph, many of the climate actions that will be most beneficial for the climate are really, they're no regrets actions. They're things that we want to do for our health, even if there weren't climate change. So they have huge climate benefits, but, you know, if we move toward more biking and walking, if we move toward more plant-based diets and more local sustainable food systems, if we shift to clean and renewable energy, those are all things where we get these tremendous health benefits and the climate benefit too. So we don't have to always frame it entirely around doom and gloom, although there's plenty to be frightened about. We can really talk about the great health opportunities in responding appropriately to climate change. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about public health and climate change. I want to raise the question about our political will, particularly as older Americans. I'm 70. And I think one of the things we have to do is make a greater effort to raise taxes to do some of the things we need. 
I'm specifically talking about taxes on the energy we're using. I'm a visitor from Georgia this week. And in Georgia, there's a multi-state effort underway to raise the tobacco tax in Georgia from one of the lowest in the country to just the median level in the United States. And that has benefits in two ways. It improves health, and we can use the resources to expand Medicaid in Georgia for a lot more people. We really need to push for a greater political will in our older generation to raise taxes that will reduce energy use and at the same time allow us to build the smarter infrastructure we need, which takes decades for our kids and our grandkids. Thank and you. I know it's not easy. I'm just raising that question. How do we develop that political will? Bob Gould? The immediate thing that comes to my mind in this regard is the effort that we had in the Manhattan Project during uh, World War II. And I would say that we have the capability of summoning the resources to save our planet. And I think there's lots of places we can get the resources, particularly from the military budget and all that we're spending to destroy the planet. Rachel Morello, is that a, is that a good idea? Yeah. Polling data does indicate that people are willing to pay for environmental amenities that they know will protect them and that will protect their communities. So I think we need to be able to encourage more taxation to provide more uh, environmental amenities and to really move us off this carbon-intensive economy that we have. We have to wrap this up. I want to close by asking each of you, what gives you hope? Katrina Peters? What gives me hope is that I believe that when people have an opportunity to really sit down and understand uh, what's going on, that they will follow through and do the right thing. Bob Gould? What gives me hope is the increased uptake within healthcare institutions where we work and among our colleagues of these issues that I hope that can provide some leadership for the changes that we need. People trust their doctors. Rachel Morello? My students give me hope. They are the ones that are kind of on the ground doing a lot of the activism and also have a really much better way of communicating really complicated climate change messages to a broader public with a sense of humor and getting us out of that doom and gloom mode. Linda Rudolph? All of the nations of the world came together in Paris and agreed that together we're going to tackle climate change. And it gives me hope to see people in communities all over the country standing up and telling our decision makers that we have to address this issue for the planet and for our health. Greg Dalton has been discussing the health impacts of a warming world with Katrina Peters, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at UCSF, Robert Gould, a pathologist and president of the San Francisco chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Rachel Morello, Professor of Environmental Science Policy and Management at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and Linda Rudolph, Director of the Center for Climate Change and Health at the Public Health Institute. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carrie Halperin is director of content. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.